right, everybody, go ahead and grab a seat, and we'll get going with week two of our Living by Faith series. Um, If you weren't here with us last week, we kicked off our series through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And what we're going to be doing this fall is really learning from this great man of faith. What does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like to live by faith, which Corey Ten Boone defines as a fantastic adventure in trusting him. And we said last week, we want to grow in that fantastic adventure of trusting God this fall. And so uh, we're going to be going through the life of Abraham this life this fall, uh, seeking to get to know his God better, that we might trust him better. And today, what we're going to be talking about is the difference that faith makes in a crisis. Has anybody had a crisis in the past couple of years? Yeah. And, and look, we're kind of laughing right now, maybe nervously, because I think there's like this hope that maybe that was just a bad season and that's in the rear view now. We're going to move on. We're not even going to talk about those things. Um, but what Jesus says is that crisis is a normal part of life in a fallen, broken world. And so um, welcome to church. There is a day coming where crisis will be no more, but you have to die first to get there. Until then, crisis will come, whether it's a financial crisis, um, whether it's a a physical crisis, whether it's a relational crisis, some of you just started school, whether you're in school and that's just not going well, uh, you are either coming out of a crisis, in the middle of a crisis, or on your way into your next crisis. Welcome to church. And look, hey, if that, if that depresses you, you really got to pay attention to the message this morning because what the Bible tells us is it not only says that there's a day coming where crisis will be no more, but it also promises us that there is a God who has reached down into our world and through a relationship with him by uh, having faith in him, by trusting him, that faith can change how you and I experience crisis here and now. That faith can take crisis from being the worst thing to happen to us to something that revitalizes our life and restores our soul. This is the power of the God of Abraham, and that's exactly what we're going to see in the text this morning. We're going to be looking at two stories in Abram's life. Uh, two scenes, two crises he faces. And in the difference between these stories, we're going to see the difference that faith makes in crisis. Are you ready? All right, we'll pick it up where we left off last week. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, we read this. Now, there is a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Um, So that right there, here's our first crisis. There's a severe famine in the land. And I think living in a modern culture, unless you've lived in another part of the world, uh, we just have no framework for what this would be like. This is not saying that, um, you know, because of supply chain issues, Dave's killer bread isn't available and you have to buy the other bread you don't like as much. Some of you resonated with that right there. (laughs) This is saying there's not enough food to go around. It's a severe famine. People are going to die. People are probably already dying given the repetition of this. Would this freak you out? Yes, probably. It freaks Abram out. And so what does he do? He goes down to Egypt. Now, um, this is our first clue in the text right here that something's not right with our boy Abram. 
Um, because Egypt at this time, it's uh, this mighty nation. It's kind of like the world's first superpower. And so really because of that, Egypt becomes this metaphor in the Bible for not trusting God, uh, for looking to um, other things to provide your wealth, your resources, your safety, your protection. And, and really, this becomes a struggle for the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, that instead of looking to their God who saved them, they look to things like Egypt to save them. And it lands them in slavery. It lands them in exile when Egypt doesn't come to help with the Babylonians. All of these problems, it all begins here with Father Abraham heading down to Egypt. Abraham is the first in a long line of God's people who looks to a nation to do what only God can do. And so here's our first hint in the text that something is off with our boy Abram. This mighty man who stepped out in faith last week, it would appear that he's beginning to drift from that faith. And how does that go for him? Uh, Not well. That's my preview. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, I've got a question here, and this is just for the women in the room. Um, How would you grade Abram as a husband here? Not well. Yeah, so he's on his way. Think about this. He's on his way down to Egypt, and it dawns on him. He says, my wife is smoking hot. He's the first Christian preacher that begins saying stuff like that. That's not me. That's in the text. Go look at the text. It says she is this woman that is very beautiful in appearance. And so he realizes like, hey, this might not go well for me because apparently the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, had this reputation for being um, a womanizer uh, who would take any woman that he wanted. He thought women were property to be collected. This is a wicked, this is an evil man. And so, and it's a reputation he lives up to in the text here. So Abram uh, fears, he's freaking out. And so on the way into Egypt, I love this, not when they set out for the journey, but very last minute, he springs this plan on her. He says, Honey, you you look so beautiful today. I love what you've done with your hair. You've traveled in grace. You've become more beautiful on the journey. I just, you look great. Did you do something to your nails? Oh, and oh, by the way, I need you to enter a harem. I was talking to Karen about this story this week. She just gave me this look like if that were us, you wouldn't need to worry about Pharaoh killing you. But seriously, I mean, think about how this conversation went. She must have asked him, well, what about you, Abram? So I'm going off to the harem, which maybe like, she's like, at this point, to get away from you, anything, buddy. Uh, <laughs> okay, now we're using some uh, creative imagination here. But think about what the text does say happened. What about you, Abram? Well, here's what I want you to do, hon. I want you to tell them that I am your brother. That way, stick with me. Instead of killing me, they'll actually bless me. So it's like a win-win. I save my life, and I actually get blessed. Now, some commentators at this point, because they want to defend Abram, will say, well, 
If you look at chapter 11, they technically are, they do appear to be half brother and sister, which, you know, that seems gross to us, but commentators will go, if you look back at Genesis chapter 4, Cain married his sister. There just weren't a lot of options at this time in the world. This is how it was done. It was just a little Alabama in the Bible. Like, this is just what the commentators will say. And, and here, here's what I want to say. Like, even if that's true, even if that's technically true, is this a good idea? No, this is, a, my wife up front is like, no, this is a terrible idea. But this is what happens when you respond to crisis with fear. Um, does anybody remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020? We're all running around, right? Like, I, I began to freak out because everyone else is freaking out. I was all normal. And then I started seeing everything flying off the shelves. They're buying all the toilet paper. You're buying all the toilet paper. You're buying. So I'm like, I got to get more toilet paper. We got to go online. We got to figure this out. Why? Well, because if the world ends, we have to be clean. Like, did any of us think of, like, if the world's really ending, this is the least of our problems. But we lost our minds. We went crazy because this is what fear does to us. It leads to bad decision-making where we make stupid decisions that hurt ourselves, that hurt other people. So when the crisis passes, you can, this is how it works. In fear, you make stupid decisions. And then when the crisis passes and your mind clears, you can look at what you did and go, I acted like a crazy person. Why would I do that? What was I thinking? What we were thinking is we were afraid. And when you're afraid, this does not bring out the best part of you. The way the New Testament says is God didn't design you to operate on fear. He designed you to operate in power and love and self-control. And fear is the enemy of those things. Perfect love casts out fear. But if you don't have the love of God in you, if all you have is fear, then you begin to act like a crazy person. You begin to do destructive things. Fear is a terrible response to crisis. But I'll also say this. I think it's a natural one. I mean, let's have some real talk. Like, the stuff we're talking about, it's scary. Anybody remember turning on the news and hearing, we're all going to die? That freaked me out. Maybe none of you. That freaked me out. So I'm looking up masks on Amazon. Some of you are like, too soon. Don't go there. Okay. Um, Man, have any of you ever gotten a phone call that freaked you out, that just when you picked that up, it just changed your whole life, and something legitimately scary is now pummeling you? Um, anyone see prices going up and doing the math on your pocketbook and going, okay, here's what I've kind of budgeted uh, for my retirement. Here's what I'm supposed to live on. And uh, man, if, unless the Lord takes me soon, this isn't going to last. This stuff is legitimately scary, and the Bible doesn't deny these things that there are scary things, that there are things that it would be natural to fear. What the Bible says is that's just not the whole story. Um, think of it. Think of it like a battle. If you've got two sides of the battle line, in Abram's story, on one side of the battle, you have Pharaoh, you have the mightiest army the world has ever known with the most sophisticated equipment, chariots, horses. I mean, this is a legitimately scary thing breathing down your neck on this side of the equation. The Bible doesn't say that that's not scary. The Bible says that is scary, but you haven't considered the God factor. You haven't looked on your side of the equation. On your side, Abram, think of what we saw last week. 
On this side of the line, he has the creator God who spoke the universe into existence. So we're very impressed with the pyramids that these guys could build. God created the people that built the pyramids. And God has promised to bless Abraham. And do you, do you remember this? He even says, those who would curse you, those that would dare step against you, I will curse them. So you've got the creator of all things who made the horse, who made lines, who made the wind, the waves, and the seas on this side. Saying, I'll bless you. I'll protect you. And what faith is, according to the Bible, it's trusting the God who is in your corner, not the battle that you see out there. It doesn't mean that this isn't real. It doesn't mean that this is not scary. It just means that this is not the whole story and that this pales in comparison to him. And that's just what Abram did last week. I mean, he looked at his life. He said, this makes no sense. But he trusted in God. He trusted what God said, not what his eyes saw. But here, Abram instead responds in fear. And rather than operating in faith like we saw last week, he operates in fear, and he ends up sinning against his wife, and he almost loses her completely. Almost. But the story takes a turn. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Um, everybody turn to your neighbor right now and just say this. Say, sometimes God saves us from ourselves. That's what's happening in the story here. Abraham makes some terrible decisions. And so now his wife is living in the king's harem. Um, I imagine she's probably having a pretty bad time. I don't know a lot of girls. I have three girls. None of them dream of growing up to a future like this. And I mean, Abraham, I mean, I was thinking about him. I'm like, he's probably not having a good time either, seeing the king kind of tool around with his wife. And some of you are like, well, it serves him right for how we treated her. Okay. But remember what we saw last week. God has banked his entire plan to redeem the cosmos on this couple. And so if Sarah stays in this harem, then they don't have the promised child. Their family doesn't grow into the mighty nation of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't born. He doesn't defeat Satan, sin, and death. And we all go to hell. So there is a lot riding on this moment, which is why it should encourage us to see what God does here. God gets involved. He doesn't stand by and let human sinfulness and foolish ruin his plans and go, well, there goes planet Earth. I really had some good ones for them. This is the big idea of the book of Genesis and really the whole Bible, that God doesn't let sin and brokenness have the last word, but that he is a God who loves to redeem and restore what was lost, that he is a God who can bring beauty from ashes, and just when things look at their darkest, he can work the best. 
And so God steps into the scene. He gets involved. He intervenes to deliver Sarah with plagues. And, you know, we'll get there when we get to Exodus. There's a whole reason God does these plagues. It's not like Pharaoh was this really nice guy. God's executing justice. He, gets inter- he intervenes. He delivers Sarah from Pharaoh's harem. And he sends Abraham and Sarah out safely after a little scolding which I personally find very amusing. I love that the Bible records this for us, that God used the guy with a harem to uh, really rebuke Abraham for being a bad husband. Like there's probably a whole sermon in here about how God uses unlikely voices to rebuke us and to wake us up from our foolishness, right? Isn't this what God does? That he intervenes to save us from ourselves. That when we make foolish, destructive choices time and time again, he shows up in our life. He says, I'm not going to let that have the last word. Are you kidding me? I love you too much. And oftentimes he uses surprising situations or people to wake us up, to bring us to our senses. Isn't this what God does? I know he's done it for me time and time again, where man, I have my days where I trust him and I walk by faith. I have my Genesis chapter 12 or the first half of 12 moments where I'll take a risk. I'll follow him into the unknown, but man, get a day later, get half a chapter later. I have my days where I forget, where I begin to fear and I start to do stupid, foolish, destructive things. And God in his grace steps into that space again and again and again to intervene, to wake me up to the foolishness of what I've done, to call me back and to give me the life that he died to bring me. This is what God does for us again and again and again because our God is a redeemer. And when we make bad choices, that's when he's just getting started. And so the question is, if you can resonate with that, if God's ever woken you up from your foolishness to show you what you've done, maybe you felt embarrassed, the question is, what do you do next? What do you do with, when the guy with the harem has the moral high ground on you? What do you do when God wakes you up and you go, I can't believe that I did that? What do you do in that moment? Here's what Abram does. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up to Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I love that. God wakes him up to his foolishness. He gets scolded by a guy with a harem. And after all that, what does Abram do? He goes back to the place where God met him at first. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. This is my favorite part of the story. This isn't just a geographical note. Something significant is happening here that's at the heart of the Christian life. Because... Here's why I say that, because I think what we often tend to do is we look at the people in the Bible and we tend to think that these guys and these gals are just superheroes, 
that they just never struggled, that they just had their life put together, that maybe they had some sin in their past, but from the time God calls them, they become these perfect Christians. And and so we can begin to assume, well, that I should be a superhero. I shouldn't struggle. And so in the inevitable moments when we fail, which by the way, I hope this story takes that away from you, that you can see the people in the Bible are very human. God's honest about that for a reason. But we don't realize this. We think they're superheroes. And so we expect to be superheroes that never struggle in our faith. And so when that moment comes that we can see what we've done, we think I should know better. And so rather than deal honestly with what God has revealed to us, we tend to run and hide from God in our shame, tend to wallow in it, can't believe what I've done here. Or we tend to blame others and make excuses for what we've done. Like, oh, actually, you have it all wrong. This was all Sarah's fault. I, I, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was Pharaoh being such a bad, dirty, nasty pervert. It wasn't on me. We make excuses. We blame others. And we harden our hearts so that rather than simply coming to God like Abram and faith and saying, I can't believe I did that. I need you to be gracious to me. We run from God, we hide from him in our shame, we blame others, we are like our father Adam in the garden who's running and hiding in the bushes and when God comes and draws him out, we blame our wife for our sin. Some of you are like, I'm not married. This is the human condition, apply that as you need to. You blame your boss, your roommate, your friend, your parents. This is what we humans do. And this is why the world is so messed up. It's not just because we sin. God can deal with our sin. The world is so messed up is because when we sin, we run from God instead of toward him for the help and the healing that he offers. But Abram doesn't do that. He doesn't harden his heart. He doesn't run from God and make the whole situation worse. God wakes him up to his foolishness and he comes humbly in repentance to the place where God met him at first and he calls on God's name again. This man is growing in his faith here and my heart for us as a church is that we would be a church that realizes that in this life, until we arrive in glory, we are all going to be some kind of mess. We are all going to be in perfect. Faith doesn't mean that you don't struggle. What faith means is when you are imperfect, when you do fail, that you run to God. That's the whole point of faith, that we can't save ourselves. And so we run to the God who is always good, who never has a bad day, who is faithful and has promised to be gracious for as many times as we would come and ask him for grace. My dream for us is that we would be a church. This, guys, this is so rare in church that we would be a church that is honest about our struggles with God and with one another, that we wouldn't pretend to have our lives more put together than they really are, that we could get honest with God and with one another, that we would run to him when we sin instead of making excuses and running from him and making the situation worse, and that we might be a church that celebrates the bigness of his grace toward us. Yes! I'm so encouraged to hear that that is what we want because these are the kinds of churches that make an impact on the world. Because catch this, those are the only kinds of churches that are operating in faith. Because faith by definition says, I can't do this, I need God to do this. And so the weaker that we are, it reveals his strength. Our brokenness is an opportunity to confess again and come back to God and say, I need you so much. Thank you for being a good God. 
and having a fresh faith wake up in us. And my hope is just as we said a moment ago, amen, that God would wash over us and that this would become known as a place in this community where anyone could come in, busted as we are, because we don't pretend to be more than we are, but we do have a great God who loves us right where we are. Abram understood that. He goes back to the place where God met him at first. He calls on the name of God. And and here's what I want you to see. When you trust in God to be gracious like that, when you don't pretend or try to compare yourself to others, but you just simply come to him and go, wow, I can't believe I did that. But I do believe that you can be gracious to me even in that. When you trust a God that big and that gracious, that faith will change how you experience crisis. Let's keep reading the story here. Verse 5, we read this. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Okay, here's our second crisis. It's a crisis with family. Aren't those fun? Um, What we learned last week is that Abram has a nephew named Lot who followed Abram as Abram followed God's call. He, he went out with Abram from their homeland. And what we're going to learn about a lot about this guy named Lot over the next several chapters. Um, what we learn about him here is as Abram is being blessed, that blessing is flowing down to Lot. That as Abram is increasing, God's word is proving true, that he would make Abram a blessing to those around him. And so Lot follows his uncle out, His uncle's being blessed, that blessing flows down to him. And so Abram's being blessed, Lot's being blessed. There's so much blessing going around that they run out of space. There's not enough land to dwell in the same space anymore. And so strife breaks out between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. Now that can sound abstract, but I promise you've seen this happen before. Let me give you a modern example. This would be like if you had a nephew or some younger family member, uh, maybe it's a child, uh, come and want to crash in your spare bedroom a while. Um, They're just not established enough in life, and so they want to come under your roof, under your protection, under your blessing for a season. And so they come under your roof, they come under your protection, come under your blessing for a season, and God blesses them during that season. And so that blessing begins to overflow from the guest bedroom to the garage, from the garage into the living room, from the living room into the dining room. Some of you, this is hitting too close to home, to where your spouse comes to you and says, I can't park the car in the garage anymore. I can't move in the house anymore. We are out of space. It's time for your nephew to go. Now, what would you expect to happen in that case? Oh, this is way too close to home. Okay, Um, I'll just tell you, and then you can send me the email later. I would expect the one that's crashing in your house that's been so blessed to move on and now have their own house that can become a blessing to other people. I'd say it's time for Lot to go. Anyone else? Amen. But Lot doesn't do that. 
Lot, this is maybe our first indication that he's a man of poor character, that he realizes, hey, being next to Abram, I've been super blessed. I don't want to leave this guy. You know, this is the jackpot here. If I leave him, then I'll have nothing. So he wants to take as much as he can in this situation. So he stays longer than he should. Everything's overflowing. There's not enough room. So strife begins to break out between their Herdsmen. And so here's our second conflict. The question is, what is Abram going to do with his petulant nephew Lot? What is he going to do? He's got to step in and deal with the situation. He's the adult. He's the older one in the situation, especially in an honor culture. You would expect the elder statesman to step into this space. So he has this crisis. He's got to do something about it. What's he going to do with his nephew who's causing all these problems? Verse 8. Let's see. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. He's saying we're family. Is, it, is not the whole land before you? So separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, well, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord chose for himself, or excuse me, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Hang on to verse 13. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Breathe out. Let's just talk about Abram as an uncle right now. How would you rate Abram as an uncle? Pretty good, right? He steps into a situation where his nephew's causing all of these problems, and he makes peace. Like, anyone like, where was this guy in Egypt? In his last crisis, he sees trouble on the horizon, and so he asks his wife to sacrifice for him. He doesn't consider her needs. He only considers his own, and in his selfishness, sins against her. Here, it's the exact opposite picture. Here, he looks a lot more like the Lord Jesus, that though he has every right, he lays his rights down and sacrifices what appears to be the good land to make peace with his foolish nephew Lot. Some of you are like, why are you so harsh on Lot? We'll get there. But even in our text here, I want you to see it. There's a couple of reasons I call him foolish. Number one, the fight is his problem. That was foolish. You don't like that one? Number two, um, Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us on multiple occasions, even in the text here, he foreshadows us that this was a poor choice. Did you notice he says on a couple of occasions, oh, this was in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. Dear reader, this is before the Lord had to rise up and to do justice against the great evil going on in that place. Again, you're like, Sodom and Gomorrah, I've heard some things. We'll get there in a few weeks. The point is, Moses is saying, dear reader, he didn't make a good choice. Lot chose by sight, not by faith. This is the exact opposite of everything we saw last week. It, the text says he looked and he saw with his eyes. Same exact language of Eve in the Garden of Eden. She looks, she sees the fruit, doesn't matter what God said. She, in her wisdom, decides, here's what I'm going to do. It's the same scene playing out again. This is meant to remind us of that. That he has seen his uncle Abram at the altar. He knows 
that Abram is blessed, not because he trusts his sight, but because he prays and talks to the Lord and listens to God. But Lot's like, nah, I got this. I don't need to talk to the Lord. I can see what looks good to me. And Moses tells us on multiple occasions, dear reader, he did not got this. He made a foolish, stupid choice because rather than trusting God and living by faith, he made his decision in his own wisdom. But that's to preach last week's sermon. That's why I would say that Lot is foolish. But regardless of your view of Lot, the point is, Abraham, he doesn't know how this will play out yet. All Abram knows in the context of this chapter is there's a land out there that looks really lush and really good. Now, we don't know it's good and looking like that because people are being oppressed and pushed down under the boot to make it look good. But we just know there's this land that looks so good. And Abram has every right to that land as the elder statesman. God promised him the whole thing. And what Abram says is, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give of what is rightfully mine to make peace with my foolish nephew Lot. This is the point that Abraham, though he is rich, though he has these things, does not insist upon those things. He does not cling to his privilege, but he lays it down to serve and to bless his foolish nephew, Lot. This is what can begin to happen when you respond to the crisis of life with fear instead of faith. I want you to see this. There's a big contrast in the two stories. Super bad husband, pretty good uncle here. Like some of you guys, you want to go home and say, hey, honey, at least I didn't do that. I tried that this week. Don't try it. It doesn't work. You probably don't want to compare yourself to Abram here, though. Anyone want to claim to being that generous, to giving away that much stuff to another person? And I know we're a generous church. Maybe some of you have. But the point is, there's a massive difference between these two scenes. Because now he's operating in faith instead of fear. And that makes all of the difference. When you're trusting that there's a creator God who's going to be gracious to you and bless you no matter what, it frees you up to hold the stuff in your life more loosely to say, you need this? You don't deserve it, but I can tell you need it more than I do, and God's got my back. So here you go. It frees you up to be a life giver instead of a life taker. Uh, Listen to how the great reformer Martin Luther put it. I think he really honed in on what faith allows us to do in crisis when he said this. Faith is a living, well-founded confidence in the grace of God. Such confidence and personal knowledge of divine grace makes its possessor joyful, bold, full of warm affection towards God and all created things, all of which make the Holy Spirit works in faith. Hence, such a man becomes without constraint, willing and eager to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer all manner of ills in order to please and glorify God who has shown toward him such grace. What Luther's saying, what we're seeing in these stories here is that when you believe in a God of grace, it changes how you live your life. It frees you up to live more of an open hand because you know what you have in him. This is the secret sauce to life. And and so when it comes to crisis, the message of these chapters is when crisis comes, you can respond in fear or faith. And what fear is going to do is it's going to make everything worse. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt people around you. You're going to be full of regret with the decisions that you make. Or you can respond in faith, which not only blesses you and makes the heart of God happy, but actually blesses those around you, even those that don't deserve it. 
And I look at that and I go, well, then I think our world right now has too many people running around in fear and we could use a little more faith. Amen? And to get a little bit more real, then that means I think I have a little too much fear in my life and I could use a little more faith. Anyone want to amen that one? And what this text is, it's really a call to replace your fear with your faith. Through contrast to go, man, don't want to be that guy. That guy over there, he's looking like something that I wish God would do through my life. This call, it's a text to replace your fear with your faith. To when you are operating in fear, which is inevitable because you're human, you fail, to confess that, repent that, and move towards a position of faith and trust in a good God again. And, and, and here's the thing, the only way you will ever be able to do that, the only way you will move from fear to faith like Abram did without all the excuse making and all the avoidance and hiding, the only way you'll be able to go straight from fear to faith is if you are confident in the character of God like Abram. And for all his faults, this is a man who seems confident in who God is. And this is why I believe that the Bible lifts him up as a man of faith. Not because he's some great man, but because he knows that God is a great God. And that is what faith is. And that's really where our text ends. Look at the end of the story here. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. In other words, they're not going to be countable by humans. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and he came, and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. See, if there's any doubts about God's love for Abram, God now comes to Abram, and he speaks to him again. And he affirms that gracious call that he gave him at first. And he says, Abram, after everything in Egypt, I know what happened there. And I'm still choosing to bless you and to make you a blessing. I'm still going to work through you. You haven't gone too far, Abram. I am still for you. What he's saying is my promise to bless the world through you. It doesn't ride on your faithfulness, on your perfection. Otherwise, I wouldn't trust a human. He says, my promise is going to rise on something greater. It's going to rise on my faithfulness, that I will continue to bless you. The way the New Testament says it in 2 Timothy 2.18 is that though we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is what we're seeing here, that after everything Abram did in Egypt, God isn't going to let the promise fail. God will remain faithful and continue to bless this undeserving man who simply comes humbly and asks for grace at the altar. And no amount of screw-ups, no amount of lack of faith can change that, which means, church, here's the big idea you've got to take away from today. This is the main thing that I hope God would get in us through this story. It's never too late to come home to God. 
It's never too late to come home to God. And that's essentially what faith is. What faith is, is it's coming back to God, whether for the first time, whether you become a Christian today and say, God, I will give you my life. You gave me the breath of life. I'm going to trust you with my life. Or it's coming the 10th time. You're a new believer and you're finally starting to run out of that new believer energy. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm still a sinner for a few months. I didn't realize that. Or you're coming for the hundredth time. Like you just underwent a life change and now all the sins being exposed in you and you're like, good grief, I think I need Jesus still. Or whether you're coming for the 10,000th time. What faith is, is it's coming back to God and saying, though I am a great sinner, I still trust you to be a greater savior. So, So would you love me in spite of what I've done? This at the end of the story is the reminder of the good news that we celebrate week in and week out at our altar here. That God's answer to our pleading for grace is yes. He doesn't leave us hanging. He comes in the end of the story and says, yes, Abram, I've heard you. I'm still for you. In spite of everything in Egypt, you haven't out my grace. I'm still going to bless you. That's what Abram heard at the altar at Hebron, and that is what God says to us at the altar here. I don't know how often you think of this, but communion is really a celebration of the last altar that's ever built in the Bible. Um, It's a celebration of how after 2,000 years after this story, 2,000 years after Abram builds the altar at Hebron and calls on the name of the Lord, the God that Abraham trusted in would come in the flesh as the person of Jesus Christ. And he would live a perfect life, deserving all honor, all glory. And at the end of that perfect life, he would lay it down and die in shame and disgrace on a cross for sinners like you and me. So like Abram was gracious to his nephew Lot, that God could be gracious to us. And by sacrificing his own life, he doesn't ask us to sacrifice for him. We can't give him anything. He lays his life down and shows us what perfect love looks like. This is, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you because that is the essence of love. And by sacrificing his life for those of us who he knows would be faithless just like Abram. He made a way for sinners like you and me to come home to him who always remains faithful no matter how far we drift. This is what we celebrate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that everything Abram was trusting in the character of God is true, that that God has come bursting onto the scene in human history. And just as he called Abram to physically walk the land, to get that grace down into his bones to where he could really believe it because God knows that we're humans, we're frail, we tend to doubt. So the Lord Jesus has called us to physically come to the altar where we remember what he did on the cross and to taste and to physically see, to know in the depths of our soul that he is for us in spite of whatever we did this week. And so in just a moment, we want to invite you to come forward and taste and see that he is good and he is for you no matter how far you've run from him this morning. And as we prepare to do that, I just have one final question I want to leave you with. And that is, where have you maybe drifted from fear into faith in your life? 
We've talked about Abram today. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Is there anywhere in your life where maybe, maybe you're not in a big crisis or anything, but maybe you find yourself making some foolish decisions? Is it possible that that's because you're operating in fear instead of faith, like Abram, like so many others, like I have? Is there anywhere in your life that you feel like, you know what, I think I resonate more with Abram in Egypt than, Lot, than with Lot today? Maybe you're in a crisis this morning, and God has graciously allowed that to wake you up, to respond to him this morning. God does this so often where he'll use the crisis in our life to draw us back to him. And so if that's you this morning, maybe you confess that to him. Maybe you say, God, you've got my attention. You've won my heart. I don't want to live for those things. I want to live for you. I'm sorry for my sin. Would you be a greater savior than I am a greater sinner? Would you love me? In spite of that thing right there this morning, I want to walk with you. Would you help me? Maybe that's how you need to respond to him this morning. Um, Others of you, you might not be in a crisis, but my question to you would be this. What did you do with last week's message about following God into the unknown? See, I've been doing this long enough to know that some of you, you walk in here in crisis, and this, this message is the Holy Spirit speaking directly to you, but I know there are some of you that aren't in crisis right now, and you're thinking, oh, I have someone I should send this message to, but, but you walk in here not so much in fear, but you're also not so much in faith. You're just kind of coasting through your life. You're not living a fantastic adventure of trusting him. You're just kind of getting by, and what would it look like for you this morning to come home to God? Because I think there's more than one way to be lost. We can be fearful like Abraham or foolish like Lot, but at the end of the day, if we're not operating in faith, what's it matter? And so maybe for you this morning, you come and repent not of your fear, but of your complacency and say, God, I want to trust that you love me even when I haven't cared much about you. I want to come home to you this morning. I want to have a fantastic adventure of trusting you. I want to follow you into the unknown. Would you fill me afresh and lead me from this place? Whatever it looks like, we hold out open hands this morning and say, come to the altar and taste and see that he is good, that he is for you, and his cross is big enough to cover whatever your Egypt is that you might come home to him this morning instead of walk out of here in fear. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. That for as faithless as we are, you knew what you were buying when you sent your son to the cross. Jesus, I thank you that for the joy set before you, you went to the cross. You didn't go begrudgingly saying, I can't believe you guys, but that you know us intimately as we are and you love us right here in this place. Your love is unlike anything else we've experienced. And so Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us believe that that is true. Would you help us to call on your name from wherever we're at this morning? Would you help us to come home to you this morning? Whatever that looks like in our life, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit as you did in Abram to stir us back to you, that we might come in faith to your table and celebrate and taste and see that you're good. And when we come to the table, God, I ask that you would work the miracle you promised to, that you would be present with us in these elements in a way that surpasses words but changes our life. Jesus, please make us a church that doesn't pretend, but that runs to you increasingly and celebrates your grace. We long to walk by faith, and so it's in your beautiful name I ask. Amen.